Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You probably haven't noticed this. Only a preacher would notice this. But King David and President Washington, President George Washington, actually have a lot in common. Both were soldiers of legendary ability, of course, and both were beloved and charismatic chieftains of young empires, and both tried to preside over a loose confederacy of quarreling tribes, or in President Washington's case, colonies, who really didn't trust each other very much. And suspicion was particularly rife between the northern tribes, or colonies, and the southern tribes, or colonies. So both President Washington and King David needed a neutral capital city in no man's land that was neither north nor south. So President Washington creates the District of Columbia and David finds Jerusalem. Now, to be honest about it, Jerusalem had little to offer David beyond its strategic location in no man's land between the north and the south. Beyond that, it had no natural resources and a poor water supply. It was not on any major trade route and way off the beaten path. Jerusalem was like Flint. You only go to Flint if your grandmother lives there. In both population and land area, Jerusalem at the time of David was smaller than Kenilworth, about 2,000 people on about 15 acres or a rectangle of about 12 football fields. Not only that, but in David's day, Jerusalem was already fortified and occupied and defended by foreigners and had been for 1,500 years before King David, which means that today Jerusalem is at least 4,500 years old or almost as old as God. Ironically, at the beginning, there was nothing Jewish about Jerusalem. It was named after a Canaanite god called Shalom, who was the god of twilight or the god of the dusk or the god of the setting sun, the evening star. And when David and his soldiers make a move to take the city, the current inhabitants, a clan called the Jebusites, were so confident of the city's defenses that they made fun of David. You will never get in here, they sneer. The blind and the lame can hold this city. Eight guys with dark glasses, white canes, and wheelchairs can keep you out. <laughs> the Jebusites, however, have never reckoned with a sly warrior like King David, who must have had a couple of CI agents inside giving him military intelligence. And he manages to sneak a couple of Navy SEALs up a secret water shaft and takes the city with minimal loss of blood. And rather than massacring the current residents of the conquered city, which has been the custom of Middle Eastern conquerors from the pharaohs to Jihadi John, David shows uncharacteristic mercy to the current residents and lets the Jebusites stay if they will let him use their city as his capital. And then, of course, David builds this magnificent palace in town and lays plans to build God a home in the city as well. And Jerusalem will become the residence of God, God's self, the site of Solomon's cherished temple. 
This all happens in 1000 B.C., and ever since, Jerusalem has been the most beloved and treasured, but also, for that very reason, the most disputed city in human history. Someone calculated that over the centuries, Jerusalem has been attacked 52 times, captured 44 times, besieged 23 times, and completely destroyed twice. It must be very special. And indeed it is. For all three great monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, Jerusalem is the center of the earth. That's how it appears in ancient maps. Everything revolves around Jerusalem. For the Jews, Jerusalem is the place where Abraham sacrificed his son Isaac, almost. It's the holy city of David and the site of Solomon's cherished temple. For Christians, every significant event in our faith happens in Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, the Last Supper, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. The church is born on Pentecost in that upper room with those flickering flames and that rush of wind and that lucid speech of Holy Spirit. Everything begins in Jerusalem. The only thing, important thing about our faith that doesn't happen in Jerusalem is Christmas, and that happens five miles to the southeast in Bethlehem, a suburb of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the locus of our salvation. For the Muslims, Jerusalem is the destination of, of Muhammad's famous and fabulous night journey under the miraculous power of his God, astride his mighty steed Barak, Muhammad travels from Mecca to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, the angel Gabriel takes him to the Temple Mount, to the site of the ancient Holy of Holies. And Muhammad ascends to heaven to meet his God face to face, also Moses and Abraham. 700 years after Jesus ascends into heaven from the Mount of Olives, the Muslims will build a shrine atop the Temple Mount on the very site of the Holy of Holies to shelter and honor the rock from which Muhammad launched his own ascension into heaven. It's called the Dome of the Rock. You've seen it. Now, Jews, Christians, and Muslims don't agree on much, but they all agree, for better and for worse, that Jerusalem is the most sacred place on earth. For the three great monotheistic faiths, it's as if Jerusalem is a wormhole in the fabric of space and time. It's like that portal Matthew McConaughey aimed his spaceship at in that movie Interstellar. It's a shortcut from earth to heaven and back again. It's the portal through which God parachutes to earth. Now, ironically, the holiest place on earth has also been the source of violent, ceaseless, and insoluble dispute. In 1099, Christian crusaders trying to liberate Jerusalem from Muslim control killed 30,000 men, women, and children. And one crusader said that he rode across the Temple Mount in blood up to his horse's knee, and he called it a just and splendid judgment of God that this place should be filled with the blood of unbelievers since it has suffered so long from their blasphemies. 
And of course, even today, a thousand years later, the Islamic State is exacting its revenge in Syrian cities not far from Jerusalem. Maybe Jerusalem is too precious for people of faith. Maybe our historical and religious memories of what happened there are hobbling the existence of that city even to the... You know that famous Psalm 137 from the Hebrew Psalter? It was written from Babylonian captivity after the city had been destroyed. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand wither and my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. But maybe what Jerusalem needs is a little more forgetting, right? might be a good thing to think about on Memorial Day. The philosopher Alfred North Whitehead said, the trouble with history is that there is too much of it. Yes, especially in Jerusalem. The trouble with history is that there's too much of it. This is true for cities and nations and for marriages. A character from a novel I once read is in a troubled marriage, and when her husband reminds her of some small unkindness, she hurt him with years and years ago. She is stunned by his prodigious memory and she says to him, you remember everything, every slight, every unkindness, every injustice. You remember everything. No marriage can survive so much remembering. Is anybody here in a marriage with too much remembering? Don't, don't answer that. This week in the New York Times, in preparation for Memorial Day, Roger Cohen wrote a thoughtful article called The Presence of the Past. He says that our present and our future can sometimes be hobbled by memories that are too strong. He quotes William Faulkner, who famously said, The past isn't dead. It isn't even past. In a place like Jerusalem, he says, overpowering memory Memory perpetuates ancient enmities. Peace will never come to Jerusalem, he says, until a tour guide tells his tour group, you see that arch from the Roman period over there? That's not important. But just down a little and to the left of the arch, you see that man buying fruits and vegetables for his family? That's important. Roman arches are for the past, fruits and vegetables for your family. That's the future. So Jerusalem is a city of overpowering memory, but it is also a place of exhilarating hope. For Jews, Christians, and Muslims, it's the place where our faith begins, but it's also where our faith ends. It is our origin and our destiny. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And behold, the dwelling of God is with men and women and God will be with them, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be crying, nor mourning, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The city lies four square, as long as it is wide. The walls are carved from jasper, and the streets paved with gold, and the foundation peppered with gems of every kind. 
Night never falls there. And the waters of the river of life run right down the middle of the streets. And next to the river, the tree of life, whose leaves shall be for the healing of all people. This is where we're all headed, you and I. And this hope, this vision, might be important for those of us who live in the cities of the Midwest. From 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon until 3 o'clock on Saturday morning, 18 people were shot in Chicago, including Giselle Johnson from the south side, who was shot in the head. She is in critical condition. She is four years old. Cities of the Midwest just now have some challenges that those on the coasts seem not to be suffering. Chicago's murder rate is three times that of New York and twice that of Los Angeles. And you saw the heartbreaking video and photographs of Cleveland just now where African Americans think their lives are undervalued and we have a tough time arguing with them. A while back, I read a nice story about Pittsburgh's Hill District. I've only been to Pittsburgh a couple of times, and I didn't know anything about the Hill District except what I learned from television, Hill Street Blues, in the 80s. But apparently, in the middle of the 20th century, the Hill District was to Pittsburgh what Harlem was to New York, the sophisticated center of African-American culture. Jazz great Art Blakey is from the Hill District. Also, Pulitzer playwright August Wilson, who is from there and set many of his remarkable plays there. Satchel Paige pitched there. Duke Ellington performed there. And then, of course, the Hill District declined after 1950, like so many black neighborhoods in New York and Detroit and Chicago. And by the dawn of the 21st century, the Hill District was one of the poorest and most beleaguered neighborhoods in Pittsburgh, blighted by drug houses, a shadow of its former self. And then, at the beginning of this century, something funny happened. People started coming back. Stephen Radley was a 29-year-old engineer who lived in a charming, quiet town south of Pittsburgh when he decided he wanted something more adventurous. So he purchased an abandoned brick row house and began renovating it. And when people ask him why he did such a crazy thing, he says, I was looking for an experience. And standing there in front of his derelict row house, Mr. Radley says, when I look at the Hill District, I don't see it as it is. I see it as it could be because I know what it was. Yes, memory and hope. We work for the welfare of our own city. We don't see it as it is. We see it as it could be because we remember what it was. And so the beautiful dream inspires us. Oh, beautiful for patriot dream that sees beyond the years thine alabaster cities gleam. 
undimmed by human tears. Or as St. John of the Apocalypse puts it on the very last page of the Bible, then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. The walls are jasper, the streets gold, and the foundation jewels. Night never falls there. And that will one day be my happy home and yours too. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.